We welcome you back to Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. At the conclusion of our last episode, we invited our audience to provide feedback and suggestions via our email address at seniormomentspodcast at gmail.com. Based upon those responses and Bob's willingness to try new things, today's installment entitled Episode 8, My Provocative List of Historical Heroes, shall follow a new trial format, that of an interview. Unfortunately, Dan Rather, Barbara Walters, and even Oprah were not readily available. Therefore, that task falls to your humble technician and reluctant inquisitor, Mr. Ivy. With that disclaimer, our podcasting adventure continues with your mentor and host, Bob Johnson, to discuss my provocative list of historical heroes. I'd like to start uh, today's session uh, with a little bit of introduction and background. Those of us that are privileged to know Bob Johnson personally recognize his lifelong passion and astuteness for history. In a prior podcast, uh, he discussed uh, his parents and the fact that they had limited education and very little formal education. And that raises the question, uh, at what point in your life and under what circumstance did you develop this keen interest and expertise in history? Actually, I was fortunate uh, in high school to have an excellent history teacher as well as a great English teacher. And uh, I've often regretted that uh, he passed on before it ever occurred to me that it might be nice to go back and say thank you for uh, giving me this inspiration. But he was really good. Uh, I had the uh, opportunity to dedicate our yearbook to him, and that was, I guess, the only way of saying thanks. His name was Nelson Warner, and a really, really great man. In terms of uh, this lifelong pursuit of, of historical knowledge, uh, would you say that your interest uh, lies more in U.S. history, European, Middle Eastern, uh, and is it more ancient or more modern history that interests you? Well, when I got into uh, college and decided I was going to major in history, I had to pick a part of history that uh, uh, was uh, particularly relevant to me, and I picked modern European history. And I guess by modern, I would say I started with uh, Otto von Bismarck and uh, worked right up through the present day. In terms of uh, this passion, do you consider yourself a historian or more a student of history? And how would you differentiate the two? (laughs) That's a great question, uh, Mr. Ivey. Uh, Frankly, I think I'm a student of history. I've never, I I would not be in a position to walk into a high school today and start teaching history uh, because there are certain parts of it that I find very interesting and other parts that I don't. As a matter of fact, Uh, U.S. history never really started to interest me until recent years, long after I left college. So uh, European history seemed to be the thing that uh, hit me uh, most directly. Today's topic is, again, your provocative list of historical heroes. And I guess to start, we should define what what is a historical hero. 
Well, there are lots of different kinds of historical heroes. I'm going to, uh, I, I use the word provocative because uh, when we get down to the list of those that are on my list, not everybody's going to agree. In fact, some people may disagree violently, but frankly, uh, these are the ones that are most important to me. Let me just start by talking about the kind of heroes I'm not going to be talking about today, not to diminish their heroism. They're all very heroic. For example, the Marine who throws himself onto a live grenade to protect the lives of his buddies, even though he knows it's going to kill him. Another example uh, would be the man on a sinking ship who gives up his life jacket to a, a woman or a younger man or a child, knowing that when the ship goes down, he is going to drown. Uh, another kind of uh, hero would be uh, a medical hero, uh, the, 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 like a Jonas Salk who started the job of eliminating the dreaded poliomyelitis, or Albert Schweitzer, or Madame Curie, or Louis Pasteur. These were all heroes. They affected the world. They're not on my list of things we're going to talk about today. One area that I'm really avoiding, quite frankly, is uh, the religious heroes. I just don't want to get into the controversy that would be involved if I started trying to play favorites or or list some because I would be sure to leave some out. So yeah, even though there are many, many heroes of that type, they're not going to be mentioned. There are those who die for a cause. Uh, Joan of Arc, for example, uh, got burned at the stake, which would be a pretty bad way to go for a cause. And I think of Nathan Hale, who said, I only have one life to give for my country. A lot of heroes out there, but what I'm talking about after eliminating all of those uh, as uh, a different kind of hero is the hero who had a leadership position in his nation and who affected the future of the world by the decisions, many of them conscientious, or many of them controversial, many of them unpopular at the time, but decisions which benefited the world around him. I think the key there is benefactive because if you you think about historically the leaders that made bold decisions uh, that affected the world in a great way, you'd have to include Hitler and Genghis Khan, and uh, uh, but not beneficial. <laughs> well, very true. Uh, I have uh, tried to ben- tried to uh, focus on those uh, who've made the world a better place in which to live and, and affected a lot of people, not just. Uh, uh, one or two. One of the uh, uh, another hero that has always been in my mind is a fictional one, uh, Charles Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities, where Charles Carton uh, decides uh, that his life has been not very important, and he actually substitutes himself for a man who was supposed to go to the guillotine because he thought that man was a better man. He was a father, and. Uh, Charles Carton, uh, his final words were on his way to the guillotine. This is a far, far better thing than I have ever done. And those words have always stuck with me. Do you believe that there is a timeline for a given person or event to move from contemporary to historically significant relevance? Well, I'm I'm not sure I I fully follow the question, but let me just say that uh, talk about timelines. uh, I'm going to come to Harry Truman uh, after a while and talk about uh, how he was 
projected into making some of the most important decisions in the history of the world after uh, 90 days as an insignificant vice president and uh, a career as a political hack. So I guess uh, I could say that if that's what you're driving at, I think there are times when people rise to the occasion unexpectedly and manage to uh, to do the things that the world needs to have done, uh, and they do it with a lot of courage and a lot of inspiration. I guess what I was curious about are your thoughts on the amount of time that must pass before historically someone can be legitimately judged. Oh, that is a very good question, Mr. Ivey. Uh, you will note that the uh, when I get to my list of uh, people who are, are my historical heroes, that the last one died before the turn of the century, because I feel that at least 30 or 40 or 50 years must go by before we can really begin to judge the impact of what one of these people has done. And uh, you can't just uh, jump, I, I can't talk about uh, uh, recent presidents, because uh, it's, it's going to take some time before we can look back and say, oh yes, that was the right decision. How did you go about approaching this daunting task of choosing a a list? And did you have a particular criteria other than how you defined historical hero? Well, I didn't have any problem with the first one, which I'll tell you up front is Winston Churchill, which we're going to be getting to as the first of the list. And the others, I kind of worked my way through the American presidents because I felt that uh, I could probably speak a little more intelligently because I've been in the middle of the results of what they have accomplished. I feel that we need to look at each one very carefully with the benefit of history and the benefit of time going by. And I would say that uh, I, I look at those and say, how has each one of these affected my life personally? and the lives of those around me. Well, as we approach uh, the actual list itself, uh, I did want to offer a a disclaimer uh, on behalf of both of us, and that is that we recognize a compilation of any such list uh, is a Herculean, if not impossible, task. These choices are your personal ones and do not in any way, as you said, imply that these persons are historically the most successful, talented, or even influential throughout uh, man's history. They simply reflect uh, your personal choices based upon the aforementioned criteria, and we're anxious to hear about those individuals. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I think your point is is very well taken when you consider that Winston Churchill, who had just finished shepherding his country from disaster into success, and who, in my opinion, saved the world from many, many years of despotism, and I'll go into that in more detail later, just just after he'd reached the point of it's obvious he'd been successful in all he had done, the British people threw him out of office. And that was pretty much the end of his career. He had one later period as prime minister, but a pretty good example that people don't understand at the time is I had the benefit of talking with an Englishman one time about why did you do that to Winston Churchill right at the height of his, of his success? And he said, well, we, I guess, decided that he would, was a better wartime leader than he would be a peacetime leader. And he may have been right. He's the one that voted on the subject, and I wasn't. Well, with that said, uh, we shall begin the list, and uh, as you mentioned, the first uh, uh, one on the list, and these are not in any particular order of significance, is Sir Winston Churchill. 
Yeah, Winston Churchill, as many of us know, had a, an American mother and a, an English father, and the less said about uh, either one of them, the better, because they did not, in my opinion, exercise a positive influence on Winston Churchill's life. He seemed to do it all himself from the time he was fighting in Afghanistan with the, with the uh, British Army to being a war correspondent to being captured in, during the Boer War. He did a lot of things as a young man, and he became a very famous author, as a matter of fact. He supported himself as an author for some time, writing for newspapers and writing books. And then came the time when uh, Hitler rose to power back in 1933, and Churchill was about the only voice anybody could hear in the world saying, this guy is dangerous, he's going to do bad things, we've got to stop him. And unfortunately in England, uh, the idea they had just lost uh, almost a whole generation of, uh, of their men in World War I, they didn't want anything to do with war on the continent. There were a lot of pacifists. Uh, uh, Lord uh, Beaverbrook uh, was a pacifist, and uh, Lord Halifax, and uh, certainly Chamberlain, who was prime minister at the time, uh, were all pacifists. Even the U.S. envoy to England, Consul General uh, Joe Kennedy, said, let Hitler do what he wants. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, a hero of America, said, Hitler is a good man. He's going to do well for the world. Only Churchill's voice, which... <laughs> People heard, but they trended to ignore because they did not want to be at war again. And Churchill began to realize that war was the only way it was going to end the career of, of Adolf Hitler, who was representing a terrible influence on the rest of the world. When uh, Chamberlain resigned at a time when France had just been defeated by the German onslaught, the Panzer armies, uh, the British army almost they, certainly the cream of it and almost the bulk of it was trapped in a little town called Dunkirk on the north shore of France with the uh, uh, Germans approaching to wipe them out, 200,000 of them, and uh, no way to get them across the channel except with the British Navy. And the king, in desperation, picked probably the most controversial politician in England, uh, Winston Churchill, to lead the country. And it was an inspiration on his part, certainly, as uh, the results showed. Churchill immediately got the British Navy uh, down there to help evacuate all of those men. The, the original estimate was 25,000 of them might be able to get back to England. They wound up with 200,000 getting back to England. Uh, the uh, British Navy was able to do that because the Royal Air Force was able to provide enough cover so that the Germans were not able to sink all the ships. They sank a lot of them. And, of course, the British populists, with a new inspirational leader like Churchill, who said, we're going to fight on the beaches, we're going to fight in the cities, we're going to fight on the landing grounds, we are going to fight. We are not going to give up. He kind of bolstered the confidence of the British people that maybe we can uh, stop this man, Hitler, who, and all the terrible things he's doing. It, it, it worked to the point where Hitler decided, okay, they escaped with all those men. I'm going to invade England. He started assembling his landing barges. His generals say, 
said, well, you've got to do something about the British Navy because they're going to destroy our landing barges going across the English Channel. And Goering said, don't worry about it. We're going to get air mastery over England. We'll wipe out the Royal Air Force. Then we can bomb the Navy into submission and you can invade England. It was a dark hour. One of the many things that Churchill did was to understand the importance of the United States. And he realized that sooner or later, the United States was going to have to get into this war if Hitler was going to be stopped. And Hitler, or rather Churchill, bolstered the confidence of the Royal Air Force uh, to the point where he said, never in the course of human history have so many owed so much to so few. And Hitler, who was trying to bomb England into submission so that he could eliminate the Royal Air Force, finally gave up. He turned his back on England, although he had to leave a lot of troops just in case, and facing England, and he turned to the Soviet Union because uh, he wanted to destroy them too. He almost destroyed the Soviet Union. They got within 20 miles of Moscow. If it hadn't been for all those troops that uh, he had to keep in North Africa fighting the British uh, and keep in France in case the British tried to make an incursion there, he probably would have beaten the Soviet Union. If that had happened then uh, and the United States had not gotten into the war, it was only a matter of time till England would fall. And between Japan and uh, Adolf Hitler, the United States probably wouldn't have lasted beyond 1943, which was kind of Hitler's target for destroying the United States. So Winston Churchill did his job. He summed up his whole attitude of life. Never, never give up. Never, never, never. And many times in my personal life, I have been ready to give up on something that was a task I just didn't want to tackle or I didn't think I could be, uh, succeed in. And I said, well, Winston Churchill would have done it. I'm going to keep trying. And it usually worked. So that's why Winston Churchill is my number one hero of all time. I think it would have been a far worse world. We might be speaking German or Japanese in this country at this point if Winston Churchill had not done his job. We often think that the turning point was the entry of the United States into that war, and we associate that with the attack on Pearl Harbor. Did Churchill accept that uh, as a good thing? Yeah, Churchill felt that uh, the United States had, with all of its industrial might, would come into the war and make the difference to, uh, to stop the German juggernaut. And Churchill was very successful in convincing Roosevelt that despite American opinion, predominant opinion in the United States at the time that Japan was the enemy we should fight against, Churchill succeeded in convincing Roosevelt that Europe should be first. We had to stop Hitler and we'd run a, have a holding action in the Pacific against the Japanese while most of our resources would go to the European theater. Churchill was smart enough too to realize that the Soviet Union was very important and even though political system was entirely the opposite of what England and the United States wanted. He knew that the Soviets could perform a function as our ally, uh, as the enemy of our enemy, which is what they were at that time. And so much of the resources of the United States and England were spent in sending, at great cost to the merchant marine lives, help to Russia, a material help up past Norway and into Archangel. 
Well, certainly Churchill left an indelible imprint on, on history. Uh, I did want to ask if you recall one of my favorite quotes, which uh, is not historically uh, significant, but I think reflects his personality. And that is the story of, uh, I think, Sir Churchill being approached by a female at a cocktail party who accused him of... Uh, uh, perhaps being inebriated. Do you recall his response? <laughs> As I recall, he said something about, well, yes, ma'am, I am drunk, but uh, uh, in the morning I'll be sober and you'll still be ugly. That was That's not a very nice thing, but it's, uh, he had a way with words. There was another one of the similar nature where there, I think it was Lady Astor who uh, he hated him and he hated her. So I happened to sit next to him at a cocktail party and and uh, she said, if I were married to you, Mr. Churchill, I would put poison in your cup. And he said, Madam, if I were married to you, I'd drink it. And he, had, he just had a way with words. He did indeed. And he wrote several extremely successful books, uh, all of which I would recommend to anyone interested in the history of the area that I'm talking about. As you alluded to earlier, the remaining uh, folks on the list are, are all United States presidents. Uh, and, of course, that list would almost certainly and does include George Washington. Yes, George has to be a historical hero because without him, we would not have a nation dedicated to individual freedom, freedom uh, as we have today. He was a good general. Uh, he had a very difficult time of it with a, I guess I'd say, a motley crew of, of patriots who uh, uh, came to his summons to fight against the British, the British Empire, when you think about it, of which we were a small part. And uh, many people don't realize that many of the people fighting against our patriot army under George Washington were so-called loyalists, Americans. Uh, who just thought it would be better to stay in the British Empire. And there are battles, uh, many of them in the South particularly, where uh, there were very few British involved. There were mostly so-called loyalists fighting against our Patriot Army. George Washington knew that England had a lot of fish to fry. Uh, they were fighting the French at the time. And if he could just hang on long enough, uh, they would finally give up. And they finally did. With our, we had some help from the French along the way, but uh, at Yorktown it, it all ended and we became a country. Washington was uh, selected as the first president by the uh, Constitutional Convention, which worked to try to come up with a reasonable uh, system for governing our nation. Uh, a lot of inspiration there. George Washington pretty much monitored the entire thing and managed to come up with means of compromise between the opposing viewpoints of Jefferson, the liberal, and Alexander Hamilton, the extreme conservative. And what came out of that was a constitution, which we still have today, uh, modified with a number of uh, additional uh, elements which have built into the Bill of Rights, etc., the other amendments. But uh, essentially that constitution has guaranteed our freedom ever since. And uh, we just uh, have a democracy in which we enjoy freedom, which I don't think many of our people appreciate as much as they should unless they, until they compare it with what many other countries have. Washington uh, had an opportunity to be king of this country because many people urged him 
when the Constitutional Convention was finished and he was president for a number of years and he was uh, ready to retire, they said, well, why don't you stay on as king because uh, we think you'd be a great king or, or dictator if you prefer, sir. And he said, I won't have any part of that. I'm going to follow the Constitution and that's going to be a continuing part of the United States way of life. Would you consider him to be a, a great general as well as politician, or are they two uh, aspects that are equal? He showed some flashes of brilliance as a general, certainly crossing the Delaware on Christmas Eve to attack the Hessians uh, uh, was, uh, was a work of uh, uh, brilliance. Uh, there were other times when he was just trying to hold the line and, and hang on long enough until England just got tired of fighting against these nasty Americans. The English even enlisted a lot of the American Indians to fight against the, uh, the uh, Americans. In the end, uh, Washington showed some brilliance as a general, a great brilliance as a president. The next historical hero is, again, perhaps uh, not a total surprise, and that is Abraham Lincoln. Well, old Honest Abe was not exactly a popular uh, person in the South, but uh, I happen to think that uh, we owe our nationhood to Lincoln at this point just as much as we did to Washington, because he recognized that you split a country into two parts. Pretty soon those two parts are going to show uh, animosity toward one another, especially if they are have such different uh, ways of life as we had in our South and our North. I can give some examples of what happens when countries split apart. Uh, North Korea and South Korea. There used to be there was one Korea. They got along fine with each other until uh, right after World War II, arbitrarily a line was drawn at the 38th parallel, and uh, it was only six years later that the North invaded the South. Sudan is another country that recently split into two parts, North and South, and immediately they started fighting over just where the line should be drawn between the two, and there was war. And uh, another example would be North and South Vietnam. Uh, they got along fine. Uh, the French left. A, uh, an arbitrary line was drawn. And the next thing we knew, we had uh, 65,000 American lives lost in Vietnam. Today, we're talking about shifting a lot of our manufacturing from China to North Vietnam, and uh, especially in and around Hanoi, which we were trying to bomb into submission not too many years ago in one of the great ironies uh, of history. Another example of a nation which split into two was India. Uh, actually split into three parts. Uh, uh, and right after uh, England withdrew uh, and the British Empire pretty much collapsed after World War II, the uh, India started fighting because of religion. And uh, we wound up with a nation of Pakistan on one end of India and a nation of Bangladesh at the other end and India in the middle and two or three million people died in the process of the fighting that ensued. Yugoslavia is still another example of a nation that fell apart after World War, uh, sometimes later after World War II, and the Serbs and the Montenegrins and all the others started fighting with one another and uh, were great uh, atrocities committed uh, in those nations. So Abe Lincoln recognized that if you take a country into two parts and uh, uh, that it was bad news, and you had to take vigorous action to stop the South from seceding. Uh, 
Uh, actually, New England had made noises about seceding during the War of 1812. The Northwest, by then it was uh, really Minnesota and Michigan and those that part of the country had talked about seceding. So secession was a dangerous thing. Some of the southern states had talked about seceding from the Confederacy. They were so unhappy with the way the Confederacy was fighting the war. Lincoln recognized that you had to fight and stop them from splitting the Union into two parts. And he also recognized that one of the things the South could do is get... England and France, who needed, uh, especially England, who needed their cotton uh, and wanted to get through the blockade, that he wanted to keep them out of the war. And uh, there was every chance that uh, England might recognize a confederacy. In fact, the confederacy was sending uh, diplomats, uh, one of whom was named Trent, to England to uh, represent the South in uh, England. And uh, one of our more aggressive, a fun-inspired young Naval captains stopped the ship, the British ship that had these two diplomats aboard. One of them was named Trent, so it became known as the Trent Affair, and actually took them off the ship. Well, the British Empire threatened war as a result of this terrible intrusion on British sovereignty. England and uh, some of the people in the United States thought it was a good idea to uh, let the English uh, go ahead and start a war. And Lincoln recognized he could only fight one war at a time. And so he actually was quoted as saying, let's have one war at a time. Apologize, give them back their diplomats, and we'll move on. Later on, when it came time to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, that had two reasons. One was to free the slaves in the area where we were not uh, already there, so it would weaken the South uh, and uh, do a good thing for the country as a whole. But also, it made it impossible for England to declare war on the United States in the North because England had already outlawed slavery, and the South had slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation said, England, if you better stay on the side of the North, and France followed suit. That was one of his big contributions to the country, and if we had split, I'm sure there would have been plenty of wars going on between the two uh, sides of the country, and it would have split into several opposing parts. There are many examples in world history of when a country splits, uh, the animosities that had developed before become warlike. I, I think uh, right at the end of the war, when uh, Lincoln knew that he had finally become victorious after picking Grant as his best general, he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, who probably thought he was doing something in favor of the South, who probably did the worst possible thing he could have done for the South, because the radicals took over. A weak president, uh, vice president, uh, Andrew Johnson, became president and couldn't uh, stop the radicals from imposing a very heavy, hard hand on the South. And as a result of that, you had black codes and and the Jim Crow laws, and, and uh, whenever the North finally got tired of policing the South and withdrew, this country became almost two countries for a time. So uh, Lincoln was inspired. If only we had been able to uh, stay with him. Lincoln said one thing. I, had, I just heard this uh, quotation of Lincoln's recently, uh, and that was, you cannot help people permanently for doing for them what they could and should do for themselves. And uh, if that uh, very strong truism were uh, 
were to be heard today in, among some of the people uh, debating on television, hoping to uh, uh, push Trump out of position in a couple of years, uh, could hear that. They probably would disagree with it, but uh, I happen to feel strongly that that's one of the things that made our country strong. Next on our list is President Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy was uh, an interesting president because he started out as a very sickly child and uh, he loved, uh, he, he started living as much as he could outdoors, which came on to influence his presidency and some of his uh, accomplishments in later years. He became stronger. He was president about the time of the, we ended the Spanish-American War around the turn of the 19th century. Became, in my opinion, a very good president. He kind of I ha- captured the spirit of America, a strong frontier. Uh, we were still had a frontier back in those days. And he uh, was responsible in many ways for the national park system. If you've ever spent time in one of our national parks, you realize the beauty of this nation and uh, how he preserved it from private encroachment uh, with much of the things he did for our national parks. He also was uh, a man who believed that you should appear strong, and yet he was a pacifist. His famous quote was, speak softly, but carry a big stick. And he uh, wanted to keep the uh, Army and our Navy strong. He even sent uh, our Navy with white-painted ships on a goodwill tour around the world. Uh, I think uh, epitomized the spirit of pacifism, but uh, we're ready to fight somebody who is the right kind of person, a wrong kind of person to deal with. I think Teddy was the kind of person that made people, made Americans glad they were Americans. He just made people proud to be part of this country. Uh, and I, I think probably the best way I can convey the spirit of uh, Teddy Roosevelt is uh, to quote something he said at one point, uh, life and, uh, and the people of our country. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man fumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who actually tries to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be among those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. That's Teddy Roosevelt. That brings us to the next gentleman on our list, President Harry S. Truman. I have uh, friends who uh, really don't think much of Harry Truman, and I must admit, I never voted for him at the time, and I didn't think he was a great president, and I must confess that it was his speaking style that I didn't like. But as I went through the list of things that he did, I said to myself, this was a remarkable guy. How would you like it if you were living a middle age, a normal life, selling hats and maybe involved a little bit in politics in your hometown, and somebody said, hey, we want you to be a vice president, a candidate of the United States. You don't have to do anything because Franklin Roosevelt's been president for 13 years, and he'll take care of the campaign. All you have to do is kind of be a, well, you won't use the word figurehead, but that's essentially what they said. 
and he went along. Ninety days after the election, when nobody had told him anything about what was going on, even though FDR, not surprising, was uh, elected along with this guy Harry Truman, who was uh, nobody knew much about, and all of a sudden, bang, you became leader of the free world. Quite a jump from being selling hats in Kansas City, uh, and uh, without any preparation. One of the very first decisions that Harry Truman had to make was, oh, by the way, we've got a bomb that could destroy the world. Uh, we would like to drop it on Japan. What do you think? He ultimately decided that it was the right thing to do. Not everyone agrees with that decision. I happen to think it was a good one because, uh, personally, I probably would have been killed uh, in the invasion of Japan, which would have taken place, and many of the Japanese would have been killed, many far more than were killed in the two cities, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that we attacked. They would have been killed, and far more Americans would have been killed. The experience of Okinawa, which just preceded that, was a perfect example of what would have happened if we'd had to invade Japan. Well, shortly after he made that decision, he wound up in Potsdam, Germany, sitting down next to Churchill and Stalin. Here's this guy that used to sell hats. Uh, all of a sudden in a position where he was representing the strongest country, uh, we, we thought so, and probably was, uh, in, in this conference. And they issued the Potsdam Declaration, which uh, made uh, told Japan what they had to do in order to get out of the war. He went on to pass uh, civil, uh, uh, he rather went on to integrate the armed forces in 1947, and uh, that uh, was not without a lot of controversy. He did a lot of things that appeared to be make him unpopular at the time. We, we, uh, he decided that when North Korea invaded South Korea without any provocation back in 1950, that the United Nations should be made use of, and that Turkish troops and English troops and French troops should go into that country along with U.S. troops to try to stop the invasion. He appointed MacArthur, uh, who was a popular military leader at the time, to uh, handle our military situation, which he did so well that the Chinese started fighting back and sending, uh, they sent over a million men across the Yalu River into North Korea to stop MacArthur. MacArthur wanted to drop an atomic bomb on Beijing, the Chinese capital. Well, you know what would have happened. You think of, of the United States fighting China, which has so many far more people than we have, a far different kind of outlook on war, uh, and uh, consider what we went through with Vietnam and say, what would have happened? Well, Truman had the guts to get in there and sack MacArthur, which made him very unpopular in the United States. But he nevertheless hung in there. He defeated Tom Dewey for re-election at one point, went on to uh, uh, be a successful president. One of the, one of the stories that uh, sticks in my mind is that one uh, time uh, uh, he was giving a political speech and he used the word manure. And uh, someone approached his wife, Bess, and said, Bess, you really shouldn't allow him to use words like that like manure. And she said, you have no idea how what a tough a job it was to get him to call it manure. Harkening back to the point of evoking the UN for the Korean conflict, was that the first multinational 
collection uh, uh, in times of war. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think it was. I can't think of an earlier one. Uh, the world was so tired of war that uh, uh, it uh, took about five years for the North uh, Koreans to decide to invade, invade the South, and I think that was the first real war where the UN troops could be employed, and it was a, a very good uh, example of what the UN could have been, but really never quite wound up as. You think about that decision to drop the bomb that had to be agonizing. Do you have any historical information about what he might have gone through or how he came to that very difficult decision? No, I don't, as a matter of fact, but I, I understand that uh, he had uh, a number of the scientists who'd been involved in uh, putting together the bomb, Oppenheimer, for example, and uh, Einstein, who gave uh, the original idea to Franklin Roosevelt, they were suggesting it not be used. And uh, his generals all wanted to use it because they didn't want to have so many American lives lost in the invasion of Japan. And one of the things that Truman said, how could I face American mothers and wives and relatives explaining why I didn't drop the bomb and why so many of their relatives died as a result of that decision? This was the way to cause the smallest number of people to die. And uh, that was the way we did it. Next on our list is President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower was one of my heroes, I think, at the time, even though he was a lousy speaker. He spoke like a general speaking to his troops when he was actually president of the United States. First, I'd like to comment on his role as a general. Many people feel that uh, without his leadership and his ability to reconcile the differing views of the English, uh, Bernard Montgomery, the prima donna of the British generals, and George Patton, the uh, let's go to all the way to Moscow guy, uh, to reconcile those two in the same effort to win the war, it took a master diplomat, and he did a fabulous job of managing the war. The Americans, many of the American generals, wanted to invade Europe in 1942. Uh, despite the evidence of the uh, British trying it at uh, Dieppe in 1942 and losing almost all the people who went ashore, the Americans persisted, and Eisenhower kind of adopted the British view that we better wait till 1944 before we were going to be strong enough. And certainly when D-Day invasion took place and Omaha Beach was a kind of on the verge of uh, our, our having to withdraw the troops, it proved that Eisenhower was right. And many people feel that he, the, the, the invasion could not have been successful without his leadership. One of the things that people don't hear much about when he was a general is keeping the English and the Americans who were crowded together on the British Isles. There were over a million American soldiers on the British Isles, and, and the British began to resent some of the uh, some of the activities of the British, of the American soldiers. Uh, one of the uh, things that uh, the British were saying at the time, uh, even though they were on the same side in the war, was uh, the Americans are oversexed, overfed, overpaid, and over here. Uh, 
And uh, Eisenhower had to deal with that kind of attitude, and the Americans uh, didn't have the highest regard in some respects for the British, and fortunately, it all worked out. When he went on to the presidency, and I will admit I voted for him, uh, he uh, recognized early that the Korean War was the big problem. He went to Korea, he talked with the generals, and within, I think, uh, five months, there were peace negotiations going on, which uh, have continued to this day, but uh, the war, the, the American boys stopped being killed in the Korean War, and that was the important thing. The very first civil rights legislation came about during his time in office, uh, I believe 1957. Uh, he also had a major responsibility for the highway system, which is so important in our country, and he recognized that we had a lousy highway system before that. Any of you who are alive at the time will probably agree. And uh, the interstate highway system uh, is uh, one of the finest things holding our country together, keeping our country together today. As we talked about earlier, the uh, Soviet Union and the United States had entirely different political systems. There was no question that the Soviets had the uh, atomic and uh, hydrogen bombs at the point where Eisenhower was president, and he recognized the danger of things going wrong. Well, it helped to have a former top military man as president of the United States, and Nikita Khrushchev held off. But when uh, Eisenhower turned over the presidency to JFK and Khrushchev met a younger president who hadn't had the experience of Eisenhower, the next thing you knew, we had the Bay of Pigs disaster. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which came very close to plunging the world into war. So Eisenhower knew how to deal with the Soviets, and he kept us out of that kind of crisis situation during his presidency. So uh, those are some of the reasons why I've added Ike to our, my list of favorite historical heroes. Last on our official list is President Ronald Reagan. Summing it up as simply as possible, Ronald Reagan made me proud to be an American, prouder than I had been before. He had the sense to realize that Gorbachev, who was a more moderate Soviet leader than the others, was the key to ending the Cold War. If you're uh, at all along in years, you were living through the Cold War and realized that uh, at any time there could have been a disastrous end of the world war between the Soviet Union and the United States involving atomic weapons and hydrogen bombs and cobalt bombs and all the other kind of bombs that the scientists were able to figure out how to, how to build. He recognized that Gorbachev was the key because he was a little more moderate than some of the others. He, in fact, uh, he talked about glasnost, uh, uh, which uh, presumably was going to be a friendship with the uh, other nations. So Reagan, uh, in one of his speeches in Berlin uh, to the German people, was quoted as saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, talking about the, uh, the wall around Berlin to keep the, the uh, East, Berlin, uh, East Berliners from going to West Berlin and getting out of the Soviet uh, control. 
And so he manipulated, well, manipulate is probably too strong a word, but between the two of them, they wound up with the Soviet Union breaking up into parts, uh, Kazakhstan and uh, Georgia and, and uh, uh, Ukraine were all parts of the uh, Soviet Union, and they broke up into independent countries. And the Cold War effectively ended. And I'll tell you, frankly, personally, I was very happy that it ended. I had been known to be putting sandbags around the windows in my cellar uh, when during the height of the Cold War because I thought surely the family and I were going to wind up in the cellar while a nearby Strategic Air Command base was obliterated. had a very high regard for him. Margaret Thatcher was a... Uh, a, a, the first, I believe, the first female pri prime minister of England, and uh, she and Reagan formed a very close relationship uh, to the point where I think the British and Americans came closer to being in the, on the same wavelength and uh, supporting NATO, which was the biggest uh, deterrent to Russian incursion, uh, German incursion, or rather Russian incursion into Germany uh, and the other Eastern European countries. Uh, and uh, so I think that was a very important thing, is that he recognized that a woman could be a strong leader. And uh, I remember being in, going in England at the time and having the guide, uh, the guide said, Oh, Margaret Thatcher, yes, she eats barbed wire for breakfast. Well, she was tough. And uh, I think the times called for a tough leader in England, and Reagan recognized that and fostered it. Finally, there are several individuals that almost made your list. Would you discuss these folks and uh, why you almost put them on your list of historical heroes? Okay, I was tempted to include uh, Woodrow Wilson, for example. It was got a second term of office in the nineteen-teens uh, uh, by saying he kept us out of war and then uh, he wound up in the war for good reason. But after the war uh, Woodrow Wilson kind of fell short. Uh, he, he came up with 21 points, which if they had, could have been followed, if he could have sold the rest of the world on his 21 points of humanity, uh, it would have been a much better place. And that's why he came close. But unfortunately, George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George in England, the Clemenceau in France, wanted to have a, an extremely unfair treaty forced on Germany. And because they treated Germany brutally, it led, made for a climate that caused an Adolf Hitler to be recognized and, and popularly supported in Germany. If Wilson had been stronger, if he had managed to keep the United States into the United Nations, if he'd gotten Congress to uh, uh, say we were part of the United Nations, the world might have been very different. So he came close, uh, and his 21 points were certainly admirable, but uh, I couldn't put him on the list because he th in the end, he did not do the job I would have liked to have seen happen. Secondly, uh, I would say FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president from the time I was about four years old till the time I was uh, in high school. I didn't think the way they knew how to have any other kind of president. He did many things for the country, but it really took World War II to take us out of the Depression. In 1938-39, we were still in a Depression, and uh, so all of his various uh, governmental bodies that he put together, 
didn't seem to take us out of depression. Certainly the Civilian Conservation Corps was a very good decision, uh, but some of the others didn't work. Uh, he, I guess he lost me when he started trying to pack the Supreme Court by adding enough liberals to the Supreme Court to uh, give him a preponderance of, of uh, views. The, uh, I had an aunt who refused to mention his name, and I understand there are many others of the time who felt the same. They would only refer to Franklin Roosevelt as that man in the White House. He was a great president in many ways. He was a good wartime president, but somehow he couldn't make my list because uh, a couple of those, those negatives. Finally, another one that uh, many people will, will laugh at, they won't understand how he even could have been on the possible list, and that's Richard Nixon. Nixon did a lot for this country that is not recognized. Certainly at the time, Russia and China, the two strongest uh, opponents of the United States, were very closely allied. And uh, Nixon sent Kissinger to China to bring them about, to bring about a peaceful relationship with China and the United States. And he succeeded. And if it hadn't been for the Watergate situation, which brought out some sides of Nixon which were not all that attractive, I probably would have had him on my list too. But uh, that's, uh, that's why Richard Nixon did not make the favored list. Well, that concludes a review of our list. Uh, I did uh, want to engage you in a, a short discussion. In your view, is a historical hero classification highly dependent on the events in the world circumstances? I think there's no question that uh, you're absolutely right on with that question because uh, uh, there are people who've had the, the potential for greatness who never uh, never had a chance to demonstrate it. There are others who, Harry Truman, the best example, who were thrown into a world situation with absolutely no preparation for it, uh, and uh, they they rose to the occasion. Uh, there are others who haven't risen to the occasion, and I guess I would go back to... Uh, uh, no, I, I think that, think that's the answer on that, that uh, some people are thrust into greatness because of what's happening around them, and others could have been great, but just didn't have the right climate for doing so. Do you have an example of someone like that that you think may have uh, reached that altitude uh, had there been a world event or war? Well, I hadn't really thought along those lines. Uh, nothing really pops into mind at the moment. Uh, trying to think uh, whether, uh, unfortunately, those those people never became well enough known <laughs> to be, to be uh, uh, recognized for that. I'm sure that there were many who could have. Uh, if, if, if they had, then I would have recognized them, but frankly, no. Fair enough. We focused a lot on these gentlemen, their decisions, uh, their actions, their leadership. But if you look at the list, there is uh, uh, some varying personalities. Who do you think on that list is actually the best human being by way of strong character, uh, humanitarianism, and their morals? You know, I, I think I'd have to turn to, to Abraham Lincoln on that list as I think about it because uh, never has there been any question of his morality. He started from very humble beginnings. He raised himself by his bootstraps. 
Uh, he became a great American, uh, and he managed to do the job that a great American should do along the way. So I guess I would pick him. I've kind of run through the others, uh, uh, and uh, they've all come close, but uh, that one, I think, I think that would be the one I'd say. The corollary would be, which is probably the worst human being by the same anti-criteria? Good question. <laughs> Very good question. The worst of the human beings of following those criteria, uh, and I'm running down through the list at this point, and this would be the list of those who were on my heroes list, not those who almost made it. And I guess I would pick Harry Truman. In spite of all the nice things I said about Harry, there were a lot of things I didn't like about him. As I said, I had, didn't vote for him, and I've got friends who uh, would be horrified to think he was even on my list of, uh, of champions, uh, and I've told you why he is. But as a human being, as a person, as an individual person, I've heard some stories about him that uh, led me to believe that I guess he would, be on, uh, he would be the person I'd give the answer to, but he's still one of my champions. The inevitable question in a situation like this is, who on your list would you most like to be able to interview, and what would you ask? On that one, I think I'd probably turn to Winston Churchill, my champion again, and uh, as to what I would ask uh, is uh, probably, uh, did he ever consider when he was thrust into office in the middle of such a horrible situation in Europe, did he ever consider saying, well, maybe Chamberlain is right. If we if we let Hitler get away with this, probably we can work our way around it in some way. Uh, he had that opportunity to do just that, and uh, history probably would not have castigated him any more than they castigated uh, uh, Joe Kennedy and uh, some of the others who were uh, negative on, uh, on fighting against Hitler. So that's probably the key question I would ask him, and I'm pretty sure I know what his answer would be. Do you see anyone out there presently in 2019 that, given the right circumstances, you feel might rise to the occasion and eventually become a historical hero? If we're talking about potential here, I would put my, uh, put my money on uh, a woman named Nikki Haley, who used to be governor of South Carolina, who was ambassador to the United Nations, and who I think would make a fine president uh, with more seasoning in the political arena, because uh, I think she's got some things to learn about what politics was all about. But uh, I do think she has the potential to be able to do it. Uh, she technically uh, is uh, even uh, uh, not an, uh, she's a Native American, or she's an American uh, all the way, but uh, uh, her parentage includes uh, some, time from, some from India. That would help her probably to get elected, and I just think she has the potential to be a very fine president of the United States and leader of the free, free world, so to speak. My final question is, what would your response be to those, especially the youth, who might opine that history is irrelevant, that those folks have long since passed, the world and life circumstances have changed, and such a focus on history has no practical application to our current world? We're the same people we were back uh, 2,000 uh, years ago and 200,000 years ago. We're still human beings with the same passions and interests, 
that we had in those days, except we're now much more technologically inclined. And I watch people with their smartphones and say, uh, wow, uh, they can learn a lot about what's going on in the world that we used to have to work very hard to research. But I still feel that history tells us how people are going to react in certain situations. And I think we can probably learn from history, perhaps not as much as we once did, because these uh, historical figures didn't have the technological potential that uh, people have today. But I still think history has relevance and uh, could, should continue to be studied by those who have an interest in the world and what's happening around us. Well, that concludes our discussion, and I do want to thank Bob Johnson for the education, the entertainment value uh, of, of his perspectives on history. We very much appreciate it, and whether you accept the moniker or not, I believe you are, in fact, a true historian. Thank you, Dr. Ivy. <laughs> I appreciate your comments and uh, hope that uh, people will not be mad at me because they don't happen to have the same list of historical heroes that I have. But uh, we all are entitled to our opinions, and I've given you mine. Thank you. We sincerely thank you for listening to our podcast and hope you enjoyed Episode 8 my provocative list of historical heroes. We again encourage any listener to send us your comments, criticisms, suggestions to SeniorMomentsPodcast at gmail.com. Today's music selection, entitled Burnt Spirit by Kevin McLeod, is available on Incomputech.com. We hope you will join us for our next production, and until then... This is your simple technician, Mr. Ivy, on behalf of Bob Johnson, wishing you well and inviting you back for Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. Mm-hmm.